And so this is like the creation out of Rob Reiner's divorce. And, you know, obviously Nora Ephron is an, was an amazing writer, just an absolutely amazing writer. And they collaborated between the two of them to come up with this movie that opens up the doors into not just uh, a man and a woman's relationship uh, from from friendship to romance, but the, the relationships that kind of satellite around that as well, right? The stuff with Bruno Kirby is, is beautiful. The stuff with uh, Carrie Fisher is amazing. And all of these things that revolve around our, our, our lives as we're kind of passing through them are so well fleshed out in this movie. everyone welcome to another episode of a podcast directed by so we're about halfway through our month of rob reiner uh in this movie uh this movie in this episode uh we'll be talking about when harry met sally and misery and you will already have heard from our expert hiro on when harry met sally uh and i'm sure it is just a you know a glowing review because uh this is one of his favorite movies of all time uh so mike it's a perfect movie right when harry met sally no no complaints about it whatsoever? It is honestly pretty close. Now, uh, listening back to this, I would probably disagree with myself because uh, someone like Hiro uh, and his passion for this movie will certainly turn you off of it. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> and, but, uh, Isn't it interesting not... how that happens? It's not just Hiro. Like, I think any time no, no. someone is really passionate about, this is a perfect movie, everything about it is great, and then you watch it and you're like, it's not that fucking great. Like, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> I think that is like human's natural reaction when someone either says something is the worst thing ever made or the best thing ever made to try and like disagree with it somehow. It's interesting because I just looked it up on Letterboxd because I'm pretty sure I gave it a near perfect score, like four and a half out of five. So I'm sure Hiro, you know, will be pleased with that. Uh, Not good enough, Mike. (laughs) Well, yeah, but (laughs) it's average rating for uh, almost 2000 reviews is 3.9. So that's because I okay. So going back as far, you know, I I probably saw this on VHS a few years after it came out, and uh, it was one of my mom's favorite movies. I this is one that I always thought was like an instant classic, established classic, and something we didn't mention with Princess Bride was that it was like a modest uh, box office success, maybe even a misfire right. based on the expectations, and it was something that became a classic right. through repeated viewings on VHS repeated viewings on uh, cable television, which I think, you know, probably has contributed to a lot to Rob Reiner's career. And maybe why yeah. we're doing a month on him is he's not an instant auteur, but there's a lot of replayability for his films, especially yeah. on or maybe not networks. even an auteur at all. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it, that, that does surprise me uh, on, on this film. Cause I just assumed that Hiro, uh, Hiro's in the right on this one. I, I think this for is once. like, <laughs> an established classic for most people. And I do think that it has probably not the universal relationship that most people go through, but I think it's what they aspire to see in romantic yes. comedies, right? You keep the couple mm-hmm. apart for a long period of time, but you have so much time with them flirting and connecting that you get that payoff at the end. And a lot of rom-coms have to come up with some 
reason, something negative that happens that pushes them apart just so we can keep the wheels turning until that climactic scene. This one does feel more natural. Uh, mm-hmm. And here's where I'll get to the meat of, uh, you know, what I like, because it would take someone a long time, I think, to decide <laughs> – I'll oh, fuck no. Billy Crystal. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that's where A long oh, damn time. Fine, I give up. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> no, I think uh, I think it's interesting that this is, you know, and of course, who knows, like, how accurate something like Letterboxd is. Of course, you're going to have, like, on Letterboxd, you're going to have the people who watch hundreds and hundreds of movies. Like, I don't know a single normal person that has you're a Letterboxd have- account. Yeah. Rob Reiner fans, right? Not the general audience right. that That's he's aspiring exactly to. Exactly right? what and I'm have made a career to. for him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I also think, I also think there's a fair amount of misogyny, uh, that's involved in a lot of, uh, a lot of movie viewers. There's a lot of people who are like, I don't like romantic comedies. Those are chick flicks. So automatically it's never going to get more than three, three and a half stars out of me because this is for ladies. I don't, I don't like this, this or, and then there's like the super serious film fans who are like, Oh, it's a crowd pleaser. I automatically don't like it just because I have to be above the crowd pleaser. It's like, there's a reason it's called a crowd pleaser. It pleases everyone. Just open, open yourself up to it. It's fine. Like, and I think this is, I mean, this is one of the greatest romantic comedies ever made. Like, I, I don't think there should be much argument about that. But I th- what interests me about this is, you know, we at, you know, certain points did a romantic comedy p- podcast. And one of the things we, you know, what they I was fucking editing that. Uh, I, I mowed the lawn today. Yeah, this is my, uh, you know, home isolation. Was editing an episode, and yet again, what am I interrupted by? Dave needs me to record something else. Like I'm right now. I was editing a conversation we had on Reality Bites, uh, which you know I don't know what the rating is for that one. Uh, I hope it's not higher than when Harry met Sally on uh, Letterbox. Maybe. God, Maybe they're not. more Ethan Hawks or more. Uh, you know, people who are logging movies that see themselves as an Ethan Hawke type as opposed mm. to Billy Crystal. I mean, and I'm here to tell you, sense. a lot of you uggos are far you're closer no than Ethan Billy Hawk. Crystal. <laughs> yes. You know what? You're, you're not even Billy Crystal. You don't even have his game. You probably just have his <laughs> right. disgusting curly hair. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Uh, what I was going to say is I think... Are you defensive about curly hair, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just a very just strange it, thing it sits, to focus it on. It sits funny on his his head. He is, <laughs> his head is oddly shaped, I think. He's very no, I'm not, small. I'm not defensive about curly hair, but I was coming to a point. So I like his beard. Just... I'll say that. He's got a good beard. Good beard. He should wear a beard got more a often. Beard. That's a good look for yes. Blake Crystal. Yeah. I agree with that. So on that show, <laughs> I'm throwing you off we used, we used to have, no, I, I know where I'm at. Uh, we used to have this whole setup of like, you know, what's the meet cute? What's the breakup? Hmm. What's the grand gesture? The title of the show is grand gestures. So go look that up. Um, and here, of course, there is a meet cute, right? It's in the very beginning, you know, with them, you know, taking this road trip, um, these two strangers, but it's not, it's not the standard. It's not like, oh, these people are obviously into each other and then they start to have a relationship. Like they meet, they meet cute and they despise one another. And I think that is much more, that's a much more impressive arc in this movie that you have these two people who don't like one another very much and then slowly, slowly become friends. And actually the breakup, the important breakup to me isn't the scene like after they have sex. The important breakup is when Billy Crystal's character like comes back from accidentally running into his ex and just like starts blowing up at all of his friends and treating everyone like shit. And she's the only one who will pull him aside and go like, hey, you're acting like an asshole. 
And this is what I love about Meg Ryan in this movie. She gets this, she has this cred of like the, you know, the really nice, sweet, uh, lead actress in all these romantic comedies. And she is, especially in things like, you know, you've got mail and sleepless in Seattle, but she has much more of an edge here and she stands up for herself and she never lets him get away with anything. She never lets him walk all over her like he does everyone else. So I was actually like in rewatching this really impressed with her in particular. She's a little certainly abrasive, I guess. Uh, yeah. yeah, she's not, you know, I, I prefer you've got mail to this, which I don't think most over everything. Would. I mean, you referred that. You re- <sighs> I mean, that's your movie. Yeah, I, I seem to recall a few years ago someone doing like, you know, give me your your four or five romantic comedies. Uh, and I don't think it was like a best. I think it was like a, a favorite thing, which I know you like mm-hmm. on this the show. And you've got mail. That's right. You know, for me is like number one with a bullet. Uh, keeping the face, which it's we did a great on the choice. Uh, uh, behind keeping the paywall. Great. Uh, yep. You can check that out. Keeping faith one. Uh, another one uh, for this month showed up on my list was the American President. So I actually for another Reiner joint to when Harry met Sally. Um, you know, I would say something like this is better than keeping the faith cinematically. I think it's like more important, right? Like sure, what sure. it's just better executed. But I think with rom-coms in particular, your own life experience shades your like enjoyment level of them to a degree yes. that probably, you know, I, I doubt that, that applies to like heist movies where you're like, well, <laughs> that's not how I did it. My time. In my <laughs> last heist. <laughs> And that's what I like about romantic comedies. That's why I you know, want to do a podcast about them. That's why if uh, you would ever stop harassing me on Skype, I would edit some more episodes and put them up there. Um, but I, I I could see when Harry met Sally, uh, because of the friendship angle, uh, that there is that sort of what if factor that's very different from you know the, the fairy tale setting of the Princess Bride, where everyone has that uh, maybe that one that got away. Or that one connection that, for whatever reason, you couldn't investigate further. You couldn't see where it went. And the conceit in this film is that they keep running into each other. And as you said, the meet cutes are forced into this car ride <laughs> where they hate each other. But Billy Crystal is still, I think, pretty open about the fact that he would entertain having sex with her. It's like, yeah. <laughs> even though there is absolutely zero attractive. connection, <laughs> you know, at, at the base level, uh, he would like to have sex with Meg Ryan. And whatever it is, the universe keeps forcing them together at very different points in their lives. So one of the strongest aspects of the film to me is the Billy Crystal character. As much as I've uh, hated on his his looks, uh, and I was about to send you a picture um, God, of what bothers me so much about him, um, is that when he gets his opportunity again, he is not really even at – he's not in fighting shape to even try to be that guy to that, that in college – where he's just like, you know, I'm just going to fuck anything because that's who I am, baby. Yeah, that's that's the I'm presenting this harsh edge. Uh, and it's I think you see that in dudes in particular where it's like they mistake being blunt for being honest. And that's right. right. That's that's how he is, because he's not really being honest. He's not honest until much later when he does start to open up a little bit about his shame, about his failings, all of that stuff. And <laughs> Because he's so wounded, he can't even entertain the notion of like, how will this get me further to sleeping with her? Like he is, mm-hmm. he is so low, and all that entire sequence is so, it's so genuine, but it's also got that Hollywood, like this is so unlikely that someone would actually be that brutally honest with an attractive woman, 
that there wouldn't right. be something in the back of their mind of like, how does this get me in their pants? And I really do respect the, the Billy Crystal carries the shame for a long time where when they do hook up and it's this sort of happenstance thing you've seen in a lot of movies, I like, I don't think the character is like a shit for backing out. I honestly think he's carrying that shame of like, did I like sort of use a genuine moment from me and I've used it to like fundamentally reshape our relationship, which was good. You don't usually see that from men in film. It's it's a really interesting character and it's really incredibly well written. I really love the screenplay here by Nora Ephron, who, you know, would go on to make much better rom coms. Oh, there it is. There it is. Um yeah, <laughs> I, I mean positive. I because well, yeah, you know no, what he's I doing. I, mean, I appreciate the effort you he's put doing in when he's listening, right? <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the effort you put into being kind for a while. Um like this is like I don't know that I would ever be the type of asshole to like rank things like this, but this is one of my favorite screenplays. Like, I just think it's, there's not really any missteps here, including, um, our side characters, like our two best friend characters, you know, played by Bruno Kirby, uh, and Carrie Fisher. I think they're great and they're in it just enough because they're both such talented comedic actors that it'd be really easy for the focus to shift a little bit too much. Like, but, a, like this is charade. 40 type thing where you have like, exactly. oh, those guys are great. We'll do their our own story with them. Exactly. Like the charade sequence is fantastic. The, uh, the argument over the hideous coffee table, like it's, and even the, like the first, like double date that they, that they go on and end up essentially switching partners, like that stuff all works. And it's really hard to find that balance where you're not like wanting more from those characters, but they're also not running away with the movie. It's also like, this is a recurring pattern in Rob Reiner's movies. It's just terrifically well cast. Like, it's just, he, for whatever reason, he has figured out the secret of casting. Like, he has made, through most of his movies, kind of all the right choices in who to put in which roles. And it's it's pretty impressive to watch. Um, and I, I was actually wondering your opinion on this, because we talked about, like, the framing device of The Princess Bride and how well that works. What about the framing device here, where we have these kind of unconnected, you know, couples talking about when they first met, and how they fell in love all the way up until the end when, you know, it's kind of revealed that, you know, Harry and Sally are having this conversation, too. They're a part of whatever this it's almost like a weird, like, mockumentary thing going on, you know, going back to this is Spinal Tap. So does that stuff work for you or do you feel like that could just be pulled out and it would be just as good without it? Uh, yes to both. I mean, it does work for me, but mm. I don't think it would hurt the film if the, that right. bit was not in there. I think it's, it's there to give, you know, I, I mentioned that we don't have that, that long back and forth in most rom-coms where you do have a side character trying to push the characters together and then they're not together. They're like talking about the other like partner, like they're bouncing ideas off their friends about how it went. And it's like this constant score keeping that you're having with the audience. And you're just like biding your time uh, until they get married or, you know, they, they chase one another for some reason or the other. Uh, and that because yeah. of the, the long stretch of the film, I like where they're just genuinely friends where they're just supporting one another uh, in their, you know, that the absence of being able to find that person to share their life with. Uh, I think, you know, it, it keeps the, uh, it keeps the audience at bay enough to where it's like a degree of comfort. Like since we don't have that back and forth and that sounding board, you mentioned the supporting characters here. As soon as they're introduced, 
uh, they know what they want, and they want not the person they're set up with. They want the other one, and they, and they, they get into a cab, and they're <laughs> they're good. You know, it's, there's not a uh, there's not a three act structure to their particular rom com story. So having those those characters, uh, I think if you're in the audience, it gives you that like little it's like a little dopamine hit of rom com sweetness. Like we're gonna mm-hmm. <laughs> we're gonna give that to you, so you can kind of go through the journey of friendship first. And don't get me wrong, the movie has one of the all-time speeches. Like I think almost every rom-com speech after this movie has to be compared to what they do when when Harry met Sally. I love that you get cold when it's 71 degrees. I love that it takes you an hour and a half to order a sandwich. I love that you get a little crinkle above your nose when you're looking at me like I'm nuts. I love that after I spend a day with you, I can still smell your perfume on my clothes. And I love that you are the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. And it's not because I'm lonely, and it's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. You see? That is just like you, Harry. You say things like that, and you make it impossible for me to hate you. And I hate you, Harry. And I don't think there's another one that comes close to the speech that Crystal gets to give on New Year's. Uh, There's there's some that you know, sort of acknowledged that I, there was that, uh, the Netflix movie, uh, always be my maybe, which I think sort of openly acknowledged during that sequence. Like I'm trying to give a speech like this and I don't okay. think I'm succeeding. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, I, I think that, uh, I think that sort of structure of it is to give you those, those little bursts of, uh, I, I guess sort of love and those, like the warm feely kind of mm. sensation you get, uh, because the movie kind of subverts, subverts that I see why it's like someone like the expert, because I don't think he's as big of a rom com guy as you or I. I see why no. this one sticks out so much further right. ahead than the others. Yeah, it is definitely very different. I, I asked that question about the, the framing because not because I don't like it. Every time I watch it I'm like, Oh yeah, these are nice little mm-hmm. you know, little stories that like complete themselves and like you mentioned, give you that that kind of warm feeling that all rom coms are aiming for. But I ask it because every time I watch this movie, I forget that that is a part of it. Like, did, I don't remember that that is the framing device. I just think, like, oh, it's the story of Harry. Until Sally. I send you a Start picture with... of Billy Crystal's hideous hair, which is from <laughs> the very great. last one of those. <laughs> it's this great. weird, um, you know, this is not a visual medium. You know, I mentioned the curly hair, but he's got this weird curly headed mullet thing. He's got this receding hairline the yeah. curls and then you can see it sticking out the back of his neck it is it's not, it's good. not great bob <laughs> not, not, a, not a great look but i'm glad you brought up that speech because i don't think i honestly i if i listen to a podcast about what harry met sally and they don't talk about that speech it's like what are you even doing because i don't even think this just ranks as you know one of the best rom-com speeches of all time like this is one of the best film speeches ever recorded like it is absolutely perfect and there's so much i love about it because it like it really it does pull at the heartstrings but i love the fact that in nowhere in that speech is he talking about how pretty she is and all the things that he would usually focus on in a prospective partner he's talking about the little things the the idiosyncrasies the you know the the way her face changes when she's 
when she's annoyed with him or when she, she doesn't understand what's going on. Like, and it really very quickly shows how well he knows her. And that goes back to that close friendship that they had throughout. And another thing I love about it is it would be very easy for that moment to be cliche. I love the fact that they make the decision to not have them kiss at midnight. Like midnight comes and goes as he's giving the speech and as she's making her decision. And then everything happens after that. And it would be so, it would be such a mistake to have, you know, midnight chime and everyone cheer as they're finally coming back together and finally kissing. But instead it's like, no, no, there's still more work to be done here. Like you really fucked up. And I like what you said about the fact that this movie, I don't think paints Harry as an asshole for doing what he did. I think it paints him as a real character, as a real human being who has made mistakes in the past and is questioning himself, maybe for the first time in his life, <laughs> about how how he interacts with women. And his friendship with her is what did that. So I like the idea that he is impacted not just by this romantic relationship, but by everything that led up to it. Like, it makes us remember there's a reason you're watching their entire story and not just the romance portion. So that final speech, I think, really kind of consolidates this movie in a really interesting way that you don't get from a lot of romances. It also doesn't ask the, uh, you know, I, I called the Meg Ryan character abrasive. It doesn't ask for her to change or to like... Nope. You need to dial it back. Uh, you need to become more warm uh, or more docile in some way. And you usually see that with, with quirky characters where, you know, it's only if they could be kind of reined in in some way that that we can accept them as an audience. Like we have to show a certain – like there's an expectation as an audience that the characters change enough uh, to our liking. And that's sometimes for the better. Like, you know, the Billy Crystal character, uh, he's abrasive in that – very blunt way where he's just basically all about, I want to have sex with women. And it's almost like, that's my right to do so. Like everyone else's right. feelings is not my concern. Uh, and his, his changed where he really is, I think troubled by, by what he thought was maybe genuine change uh, now being weaponized in a way, almost accidentally mm -hmm. on his end that he is giving her something that is not, uh, you know, not worthy of her uh, is very sweet. And it, it makes for a nice sort of breakup there. But I don't mm -hmm. think the Meg Ryan character is ever asked. And I think by the end of it, like, even though she's set up as sort of a broad character, you know, she's very picky about what she she eats. Uh, she's very demanding. She's very exacting. Um, I don't think she's asked to, to change in any way, nope. which is fantastic in one of these yeah. these films. So like, And it makes sense. It, it makes sense that if someone actually, like, fell for a person like that speech you fall for what are the perceived flaws as well. Like, I don't think he's saying right. that's a flaw. I think he's, he's just falling for what he used to make fun of. Now he can't imagine living without. And it's just, it is right. phenomenal in that way in his execution. And, um, you know, I think Meg Ryan also gets a bad rap because she was just very successful at this genre. Like, right. you know, it's something that, how dare you be good at this? <laughs> yeah. And that you, you kind of mentioned like maybe like letterbox, not being the right <laughs> venue to see films like this being appreciated. And I agree with you. Uh, but you know, if this, if Meg Ryan had come up with these type of films in like the forties and fifties, she would be a screen legend. It was not a bad oh, thing yeah. to be the, the king of Westerns or to be, you know, the, the queen of, uh, you know, being the femme fatale character. Like it was, it, it's cool to be iconic in that way. And I feel like, you know, we've done a disservice to our modern movie stars because Meg Ryan was certainly 
iconic in that regard. And I'm oh, not yeah. – I also want to cover myself. I'm not shaming people for uh, you know, liking her doing something like in the cut. Yeah, you know, for, for also attempting to subvert that. If you like that, it's cool. I'm not saying that actors should be caged in by the classic studio right. system where they play the same role. But I do think cinephiles in particular uh, kind of besmirch an actor's reputation for that. Because her role here, even though it's a rom-com, it's still very different from You've Got Mail. It's very different from Sleepless in Seattle. And I know because yep. I watch these movies, you know, once a month. All the time. Because <laughs> <laughs> these are comfort food Absolutely. movies. Absolutely. You know, I think the last thing I want to bring up was I was in kind of rewatching this with a more critical eye. I was shocked at just how progressive it is because this is a movie that came out 31 years ago. Um, so this is 1989. Um, and not only the fact that you have, you know, an actual friendship that burgeons into a relationship and you have the woman not being asked to change in any way. Um, but also that framing device we talked about. I like how, how varied those stories are. There's some that are kind of the standard, like I saw her from across the room. I fell in love. We got married two months later. It was great. Um, and then, but then there's a story later where, you know, they get married and then they get divorced and then he has two more marriages and then they meet again at a funeral and then they get married again. And it's, it's the idea that like, you can't pigeonhole love. There is not a single love story. There can, you know, if they made it today, I'm sure there would be same sex couples in that montage. Like, you know, and of course, in 1989, maybe that was more frowned upon and, you know, not thought of as quote unquote normal or something that would be marketable for a movie like this. But I like the fact that we have all these different styles of love that are shown in the same light. There's even though that that moment is done for a little bit of comedic effect, it never feels like, oh, well, this one is just silly. Like, it's like, no, this is just as valid as any other way you fall in love. Just like the story we're telling here is really valid, even though they met each other and hated each other. And then they had sex and he acted like a jackass. And then they finally got back together and started their life together and started their relationship. Like all of that is valid and real and true. And that is something you did not see in the mid to late eighties. So it was really nice to watch this in 2020 and be like, Oh, this story could be made now and it would feel just as modern. Do you think this one, um, does this feel like more nineties in that way? Like a nineties rom-com early nineties. Like, I mean, it's right on that, yeah. that line, that cusp, that it feels cusp. like it, mm-hmm. it kind of brings in a, a new era. And if you, if you are you know, going back to the, the sort of the movie star thing, I was pausing with, if you're in the mood for Meg Ryan movies, I feel like you're going to rope this in with a lot of those uh, early to mid nineties, uh, the comedies that she put out uh, more. So certainly, right. you know, when we're, we're going to like uh, the sure thing, that feels like an eighties movie. <laughs> that feels oh, like yeah. it's in that particular time <laughs> in all the worst uh, ways. One, yes. <laughs> yeah. This one feels like it's a, uh, as you said, progressive, a step ahead and ushering in what was yeah. going to be the next decade of these type of relationship stories. Definitely. And you know, I like, I like talking about Meg Ryan, uh, Ryan comedies with you in particular, because I think we, we both have, um, have our favorites that maybe other people wouldn't be like, Oh yeah, that's the greatest romantic comedy of all time. Like yours is mm-hmm. you've got mail minus French kiss. And then we mm-hmm. can watch this and you can see how different this is, even though it is like kind of the start of Meg Ryan, the rom-com starlet. And it's interesting. We think of movie stars in very different ways, I think, depending on era. But if you look at this period, like you could put any movie with Meg Ryan and is a romantic comedy and that movie would make money. Like people would come in droves to go see it. So she really was like. You know, in the in the 80s and 90s, like Meg Ryan was a movie star. And I think when we look back, maybe people don't see her as that. 
but like she was an actual bankable star. And I think it, it again ties into that kind of misogyny of how people look at rom-coms. Like you would never, most people would never say like, oh, Tom Cruise, Meg Ryan, movie stars of the eighties and nineties. Like they would not include her in that because Mm -hmm. it's just a chick flick. Like you could easily say, okay, those Tom Cruise movies, those are just action movies, but nobody ever really does that. So I find that interesting that like, you know, we look at her in a different light, even looking back now. And I kind of, I kind of long for that period of time, the like early to mid nineties where a romantic comedy was going to do numbers. And now like it would just go straight to Netflix, right? It would be always be my maybe. Like you'll never see the light of a theater. Although right now, nothing sees the light of a theater. So, you know, we're all on the same page. <laughs> what a depressing end to such a sweet movie, Dave. <laughs> Let me tell you, your uh, your speech to, to wrap things up uh, also did not reach the levels what uh, Crystal got from uh, Miss Efron no, and uh, no. Mr. Reiner. Look, if, if Nora Efron could have written me some speeches, <laughs> we would be fine. But that's just... You know, not going to happen for a variety of reasons. So, sadly, I feel like she, in some way, she she wrote my my life anyway because I I, I'm not that far removed from uh you know being just uh you know I'll just just put it out there uh, ugly like Billy Crystal and I have a beautiful wife. (laughs) (laughs) I love how that they could have gone one of two directions. I'm (laughs) ugly or like man, I just fuck a lot. Like it's just and you went (laughs) you went to the former, which I love about you. That's perfect. All right, so we are going to take a break, and we'll hear what our expert Hiro has to say about another love story, Misery. I've seen it, like you said, multiple times. I I wanted to rewatch it for your show just to to really look at it from a casting perspective, and also look at it from what Reiner's bringing to the table. And you know, when we talk about him being an actor's director, he's really framing. Kathy Bates here, especially like right from the jump, you know, these super close ups when and all from below where, you know, because he's obviously laying down on the bed. So you've got this perspective, right? And of this, you know, larger, very like strong boned woman. She's not a she's not a like a waif. She's she's like impending over you. And watching her uh go back and forth between sweet and manic and just insane, all in the cycle of 30, 40 seconds is frightening. All right, so now we're back. We're back to talk about yet another Stephen King adaptation from Rob Reiner, uh, Misery, um, starring Kathy Bates and James Caan. So um, this is another movie I kind of came to late. Like, it's much like This Is Final Tap. It's something that I think in some circles is definitely just in the cultural lexicon like you know you know what happens to james Conn's legs in this movie you know the basic plot of it you know the crazy fan and this is you know stephen king being very ahead of the curve as far as like fan or stan culture like people who are like wow you are really into this in a way that is unhealthy um (laughs) so this is a movie i saw like for the first time like i don't know maybe six or seven years ago um and just absolutely loved it like i was amazed at Sometimes, you know, you'll watch movies from 30 years ago and you'll be like, oh, yeah, this feels like a 90s movie. This really feels of its time. But I think this one really works. And it's another example, I think, of Rob Reiner being the perfect director for a Stephen King work. But this one definitely is going way more into the horror aspect as opposed to Stand By Me. So what about you? What's your 
connection or history with misery. I felt like I was introduced to it at a young age. I, I shout out my, uh, my mother and my stepmom, and I don't remember which one introduced me to this uh, back in the VHS days. Uh, but I have to believe it was a pointed <laughs> suggestion. I don't know if there was like <laughs> a threat of punishment <laughs> or basically like get your shit together. Uh, but it stuck with me. Uh, and uh, this is this is a favorite of mine. This is probably the one of Rob Reiner movies that I've seen the most. Uh, I get the the itch to to watch it almost on an annual basis. I mean, basis. aside from Princess Bride, I mean, Princess Bride. Is I think good. I've even seen it. it I've seen wow. it. I think I've seen it more than Princess Bride. Uh, like I said, there's there's some <laughs> something in me who's uh, not a religious man uh, that like this is this is basically my Bible. Like this is the like <laughs> the Old Testament of cinema for me, where it's like you need to see man struggle and punished for his uh, his uh, you know pride. And um, it's you know without getting into like Last Temptation of Christ or like First Reform territory, uh, this is fun. This is like a popcorn thriller mm-hmm. with some comedy, uh, very twisted romance. It is a strange mixed bag of different genres that I really love. And I think it's easily watchable, which is not something you can say for, you know, films that are known for their torture sequences. Like, I don't think, uh, you know, getting biblical again, I don't think The Passion of the Christ is known as an easy sit. Like, oh, that was a fun <laughs> one. That was a wild ride to movies. <laughs> Uh, but Misery does. So this is, I, I don't know if, you know, other people shared. This is, you know, one Kathy Bates, I believe her only Oscar, yep. which, yep. Um, you know, that man, the early nineties were strange. You get this and Anthony Hopkins, you know, playing a cannibal, like back to back, like, you know, horror really yeah. was being respected uh, at that time. Uh, but I don't know if like the true, you're, you can speak to that more. You're more into that. Like, uh, you know, those freaks of like horror f- film fans. Do they embrace this one as like a, a masterpiece of horror? Yeah, I think actually that is one of the reasons I finally watched it was a lot of my okay. friends who are really into horror were like, oh, you haven't seen, oh my God, you haven't seen Misery? Like you, you have to see that. Like, you know, Oscar winner, it's, you know, but still definitely delves into that horror. But it's a, I think actually if you are looking to get into horror movies, this is actually a really interesting starting point because um, it's not, like it is violent there are moments of violence there are moments of gore but they're very quick um because that's not reiner's wheelhouse he's not you know going to do a whole lot of practical effects and blood splurting or anything like that like he is there for the human interaction and i think you bring up bring up a great point um as far as why reiner is so great especially for this is that it mixes so many genre um and reiner is really good at comedy um, he's really good at the darkness. He's really good at drama. So you have kind of all of that wrapped up here in kind of the perfect package for Rob Reiner to direct. And I think, I don't know who wrote this movie, but they made one really smart choice, um, that I think puts this over the top as better than the book to me. Cause I, I read this book relatively recently and there are long extended passages of the actual book that he's writing. And it made me like just want to pluck out my eyes like i was just like i don't care let's get Is back it like the uh to the, the black story. freighter stuff and watchmen because that's yeah, what i was struggling exactly. with reading watchmen but much, I, I really did not like much that worse, much worse much worse much worse but yeah. yes 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 i just couldn't stand it like the rest of the the rest of the novella the rest of the book is great it's fantastic and they take a lot of great stuff to to make this film and i think i think what's really interesting is of course kathy bates got a lot of acclaim for this and deservedly so it's a fantastic 
at moments unhinged performance, but then you watch her kind of reel it in um, very smartly. But I think like kind of the unsung performance here is James Caan. Like I think he's fantastic in this role. And it's, it's striking to me to see him in a role like this because everything else I've seen him in, he is like ultra masculine and in control of his situation until he's very much not depending on the situation. Like he was, you know, he was in The Godfather, another great performance. He was in Thief. And even as, as he's aged, he was always this kind of rough and tough actor. So to have him confined to a bed and have him controlled was really powerful to watch because I think we go into movies, especially if we know an actor very well, like, oh, that's who this actor is. And to totally kind of flip that on its head and have him being controlled by Kathy Bates is really kind of shocking to the system to watch. And all of these very smart cuts to his face, trying to control his emotions. Like it's a, it's a very difficult thing to do to act scared while not trying to show the person that's looking at you that you're scared and yet still show that to the audience. And I think it's actually like a really impressive uh, acting performance from him facially and some really great direction from Reiner. Yeah, this one uh, I'll shout out. Uh, so this is uh, William Goldman again. And uh, I can't remember which of the two books, Adventures in the Screen Trade or which lot did I tell uh, where, where that falls. But uh, both are great. And if you're a film fan, you should definitely check those out because it's uh, it's all like the juicy stuff with the, uh, you know, the, the technical uh, aspects of being a screenwriter. So I remember him saying that they basically, you know, this is a great part to play, but all of your above the title uh, you know, genuine movie stars, like say a Redford, um, had, well, they had no interest in being emasculated in such a way. Like right. he, you know, there's a sequence where, and I remember Goldman really fought for the, uh, the original version, which I believe, I believe she takes an ax to his legs, right? I yeah. believe yeah. he is mm-hmm. permanently, uh, you know, disfigured in that way. Uh, instead they do this hobbling thing, which, uh, you know, Potato, potato. It's, it's enough. <laughs> either, one, either one is horrifying. Uh, but I, I remember him saying that, uh, and he, he really appreciated uh, to what you're talking about. James Caan is sort of known for his masculinity. So if you know him from The Godfather, even though, uh, you know, uh, tragedy befalls that character, he's the tough one, right? He's the one yep. that is the most physically yep. imposing, that will be quickest uh, to react with violence and to see him for the majority of the film – uh, being capable of defending himself uh, physically, mm-hmm. it, it is. It, it puts yourself in a weird situation, and you realize that you've been trained by movies uh, for your, in particular, your male lead uh, when they're in trouble. That that's how they get out of it is through some right. sort of physical prowess. Like I've been watching, I've been on an early '90s kick of late, and I've been watching the uh, Jack Ryan stuff with Harrison Ford. Uh, I also watched The Fugitive mm-hmm. in there as well. So early '90s Harrison Ford, they are really good. Um, I always remembered liking Patriot Games uh, the best, but I actually prefer uh, Clear and Present Danger this time. And what's interesting Only though, one is of that, them has Sean Bean, so, I mean, that's the good one. I don't know what to tell you. I, I mean, <laughs> kind of, uh, you know, but I, I think that the, uh, the the cast in Clear and Present Danger, you know, there's some heavy hitters in there too, Dave. Yeah. I mean, I know you're going with your Lord of the Rings uh, fandom there, but you do have that's the right. Green Goblin as a really cool... <laughs> Him assassin of some 
it's like it's Willem Dafoe. I'm sorry. I, you know, I have to, you know, I'm going with Lord of the Rings. I have to even the playing field. I have to basically get ahead of the insult that you're going to throw back at me by saying, but what about Fair. Willem Dafoe? Good choice. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but to, to make my point with Jack Ryan, it's clear that they're, they, they have characters say like, oh, he's so smart and he's analytical. And it's weird in particular to see, you know, Harrison Ford play it up a little bit, you know, pull back mm-hmm. and he's, he's not quick to, shoot him up. He, uh, most of the violence that befalls him is accidental and he's just reacting to a situation. So you could almost see someone like that playing it. Even Harrison Ford, as much as I love him, probably was not taking this, this role, no. but it's, it's just something that you, you expect like, Oh, our male hero will somehow do something. And you have Kathy Bates totally in physical control here for most of it. And even the climactic fight scene, it is her her fandom that befalls her. Uh-huh. It's not that she's. I don't believe that it's, even though she is physically overpowered. It's because she cares so much about this stupid fucking book that she takes her eye off the ball. Yep. <laughs> and it's it is it is scary. I've seen the the comparison made to like you know comic book fans in particular the Star Wars series, which I feel like the fandom has like almost completely destroyed that for like yeah. <laughs> for like the general audience. It is like now like ooh I want nothing to do with that anymore because look at that shit show. Um, you can see why, but what's cool about the movie and what I really like about it, and I think what brings me back to it, is that the film doesn't say that what she asked was horrible. Like, the, the book that he's writing, even though it's a form of torture because it's a character he wanted to put to bed, I do think the film presents it that, like, when he was trying to step out, that he actually wasn't producing good work. Like, mm-hmm. that he thought he was better than the material that people enjoyed that that made him like successful maybe you're not and maybe you're not and like i i I really think that's an interesting and cool choice that in some ways they're saying that the character here played by kathy bates maybe she's right about misery maybe she's right that there was there was actually some unresolved stuff and you haven't yet written your masterpiece and i'm gonna force you to do so like this one is a really good companion piece to something like phantom thread it's far more populous. Mm-hmm. It's far more, yep. you know, uh, popcorn thriller. Uh, I don't think the the PTA joint is going to be something that anyone can just throw on. But I, I think they're like one A and one B as far as like the same thing they're trying to get at and how they they sort of kneecap that idea of like what a true artist is. That there's someone else mm. that can edit them and kind of push them further than even they thought possible. That's my defense of Kathy yeah. Bates here. I think she's a no, good no, I. She's a, she's <laughs> she killed some kids, she killed some babies, whatever. Yeah, fine, whatever. <laughs> she did what she, she knows had good to books. <laughs> and I think, and I think that is a really interesting change as far as adaptation goes, because I don't think I think that does ring what you're saying rings true in the film, and it doesn't in the book. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with like you know Stephen King has had his share of crazy fans, and he's had his share of fans being like, you have to finish this book before you die. I mean, that's what happened with. You know, the whole Dark Tower series, like people harassing him, even as he's like recovering from a horrible crash, like still telling him, no, but I don't care. You have to finish this book. So I think it's a I think this movie has more shades of gray than maybe the book does. And I think that's that's Goldman's work there, I think, more than anyone else. Um, It does make me wonder how how this would work, because you mentioned Goldman wanted to keep in the kind of bloody axe sequence. And it makes me wonder, like, what this would have looked like. Cause I just don't, I, I don't see Reiner as one of those directors who could successfully 
pull off gore. That just doesn't seem to be his style. So it does make me wonder, like, what this would actually look like and who he would think, maybe bring in to help him out with this. I think they were more concerned with audience uh, reactions where mm. they completely check out the movie. Like, that is a bridge too far uh, because, you know, that's why I asked you, I led with, what does the horror community think of this? Because I think it's 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 not something I would expect to see on, like, Shudder necessarily. No, uh, no. I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. knocking that service, but I think they're going for, uh, you know, what people consider, like, Absolutely. That a horror movie is bloody. Uh, maybe there's something supernatural. There's monsters, whatever. Uh, I think this one is, you know, anything that could air, you know, on TNT in the afternoon probably is not like shutter material. And this one kind of is. No. So I, I think that like with a lot of Reiner stuff, you know, he's appealing to a general audience and it was a smart move. It's you still get across the violence and the apprehension of what you're seeing on well, screen and what's about to happen. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it leaves enough room that the the possibility is this man, you know, he's he's going to walk with a cane and he is haunted. I mean, the final scene, he's he's he sees her pop up again. Uh, but I, I think it was a legitimate concern. And I think even Goldman, his book, said that after watching it with like, you know, test screenings, that they were absolutely right. That people, while horrified, they were able to continue on with the journey to see like, OK, what happens next? What's he going to do now? Whereas, you know, maybe if you actually just, you know, you cut off this man's legs come off at the knees literally uh maybe you throw up your hands and be like i don't you know i don't see any way out of this and i don't care anymore like i can't get back into the movie yeah and you kind of mentioned like you know crazy time for the oscars where kathy bates was nominated here and then of course silence of the lands got nominated for fucking everything right here and won pretty much everything and it does make me wonder if you have a scene like this like does it get that kind of publicity or did the kind of crowd-pleasing aspect like kind of carry her to uh to that nomination because the same thing like there are some gross moments in silence of the lambs but it definitely is pulled back like they you know there's a lot of stuff they don't show it's remarkably subtle for a movie uh, about a cannibal like (laughs) really scott's version hannibal in early 2000 i think leans far more into the pure horror aspect where they they go for it and it's very uncomfortable and that one is also far trashier than I think either yep. Misery or Sansa Lambs. I dig all I dig all of them. I like all of those movies, even Hannibal. And I, I remember the reaction to it was it opened well, and then people are like, "This is off the wall insane," and I don't care for it. Like where, <laughs> where is the sweet Leona, romance man. with Jodie Foster? And I'm like, give me Julianne Moore. Like I, <laughs> Julianne well, Moore. Look, I think now yeah. we're coming to why you like it so much. <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay, I was questioning, so, but now I get it. <laughs> I don't I don't want to get off the rails, but honestly, like I just rewatched Hannibal also recently, and I don't think Jodie Foster fits in that. It's 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 like they obviously would have accepted her if she would have taken the money and come back for a sequel and she chose oh, you not mean to. In the plot of that movie, yeah. But in I that version, that. seeing that Clarice Starling, I actually like that there's a disconnect where it's a new actress playing it. So I'm not seeing that same dynamic between uh, what Demi did and later on, um, you know, look, yeah, you, you know me, Dave, if, if they, if they redid misery and Julian Moore was in the part, even if it made no sense, I'm like, I'm in, in. <laughs> I'm <Perfect>. game <laughs> Do it. Is there a hot redhead in this movie? Then, Wasn't she, okay, she was in the, the bad version of Carrie too, right? Or one of the bad versions, the, the remake yes, that yes, I didn't care was. for. Yep. They called but, my bluff, you know. but I, I doubled down. I'm like, I'm like in swingers. I'll <laughs> double down. <laughs> I'll just lose every time. It's fine with me. I'm here for it. Yeah. Also it, you know, I'm always impressed by 
by movies that are well crafted like this when you only basically you have like what three or four characters in this movie that matter um like you have the you know you have your two lead characters and then you have the sheriff and his horny wife uh which is god bless those two really (laughs) matter the the deputy who just wants to get under the covers with the sheriff like oh god (laughs) I aspire to that. That's what I hope the my marriage looks like. The perfect Mike Denniston special right there. Man. And, oh, then you have, man. and then you have his agent. I mean, that's pretty much it. Um, and yet, there's never a moment where I feel like, oh, I wish I could know what was going on outside of these walls. Like, it is so focused. It actually weirdly feels like a stage play in that way, where you almost never see anything else that's going on in the outside world. It's just all about him trying to escape this horrible situation when he doesn't have the physical means to do it. And she has complete control over him. And that stuff all really works. I think they actually did a version of this years ago on stage with Bruce Willis uh, as the, as the oh. author here and uh, Laurie Metcalf as Annie oh. Wilkes. And I would love to have seen that. I don't but think yeah. what I recall that, that Bruce Willis got uh, great reviews and uh, his, you know, being on the stage. Uh, yeah, but well. man, seeing uh, Laurie Metcalf, do this character. I think that, that would have been pretty cool to see her version of yeah. it. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So that is it for this episode on our next episode. It's going to be the Aaron Sorkin double feature. Um, so we'll take a look at a few good men. And uh, as Mike has mentioned more than once, one of his favorite romantic comedies, the American president. Um, so that is something to look forward to for sure. We'll, know we'll have uh, at the very least great dialogue to talk about in those two movies. Cause Aaron Sorkin is Aaron Sorkin. Um, so, uh, until that episode, you can follow us on Twitter at directed by pod. And if you would like to hear more of our interviews, instead of just clips, you want to hear the whole thing, like our expert Hyro from the true bromance uh, film podcast, who is our expert for our Rob Reiner month. You can go to our Patreon and donate as little as a dollar a month, uh, and get full access to all those things, plus some other rewards for you. Uh, and the address for that is patreon.com slash a podcast director. Just like mannequins with painted skin